This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. This is Matt Mattern, and this is the Unite and Heal America program. My guest today is Dr. Diana Handel, and she is here with us, has written a couple of books. would love to uh, share those with uh, the audience and talk to... Um, Talk to you, Diana, about your experiences in running a hospital and and uh, your background, how you got into the uh, medical field, and sure. Well, my professional career started in the late 1980s, um, and I was a, started as a clinical pharmacy student and then a clinical pharmacy resident at Long Beach Memorial Medical Center and Miller Children's Hospital, which are in Long Beach, California. Um, and at the time, I had envisioned being becoming a clinical pharmacist and staying on as a clinical pharmacist. Um, but I ended up doing a second year residency in hospital administration and found that as much as I liked clinical practice, I loved the operations of a hospital. I loved how no one patient could be cared for by any one person alone. It really took a team effort, um, the logistics, the technology, the uh, verbal handoffs, the written handoffs were really, um, well, so amazing to me. And it was also a thrill to be able to care for people on their very best days and on their very worst days. So like at our medical center, any one moment, someone might be experiencing the very best day of their life. They're having a baby or a newborn is being brought into their family. But at that same moment, perhaps someone else or their family has experienced the worst day of their life, their passing. And it was just, it always struck me as the responsibility and the honor of being for people at all stages of their life. Um, and to do that as a team um, was really extraordinarily fulfilling. And so I stayed on actually as a supervisor in the pharmacy department. And then my, over the course of the next 20 years, I, had the opportunity to serve at all levels of leadership um, and throughout our healthcare system. And then ultimately becoming CEO of Long Beach Memorial and Miller Children's Hospital in early 2009. Uh, so that's my background of career and, and why uh, I chose hospital, uh, hospital administration um, as a career. Sure. Well, that's a, it's a great uh, story. And as far as, you know, being the CEO of Long Beach Memorial Hospital is, is quite a big job. I, I would imagine there are hundreds, if not thousands of employees that support the facility. And uh, it is it is a pretty uh, complex organization. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and what that entails. Well, sure. You know, in addition to being providers of care, um, and everyone would recognize that a hospital provides care, we were also an educator of the public and, of course, a training site for future medical professionals. Um, but we were also one of the largest employers in the region. So we were a major economic engine for the, re for the region and very much a cornerstone, very much a part of the fabric. Um, in fact, Long Beach Memorial had been in existence since 1907. So well over 100 years of caring and educating and providing jobs uh, employment for people in the in, in the region. Um, there were more than six thousand employees associated with Long Beach Memorial and Miller Children's. Um, more than fifteen hundred independent uh, practicing physicians, um, and then 
several thousand more uh, contractors that worked as part of or fa- or called uh, Long Beach Memorial and Miller Children's um, Home as an employment uh, opportunity. So um, that's the background of the size of the organization and its importance to the community. Um, and I say a lot of that with sort of kind of reverence because, as I'd mentioned, being part of something that was very mission driven there for people at all stages of their career, but also that responsibility of, of providing care, educating and providing jobs was something that was not lost on any of us in the leadership team. Well, it's uh, it's kind of like a small town. I mean, you're talking about 6,000 yeah. employees and thousands of contractors and 1,500 doctors. That's a, that, that's not a, a more than a few streetlights that you have to go through to uh, go through that small town. So it's a, that's a big operation. So I would imagine um, very challenging as the CEO of an organization like that. uh, What were the things that you found most challenging uh, and, and rewarding while doing that job? Yeah, well, it certainly was a city within a city uh, and like, all cities, we never closed. It was a 24 seven, 365 day a year operation. We never closed. Um, we certainly had, you know, lots of challenges. Um, healthcare and hospitals in particular are a very razor thin margins. Um, and more than half of expenses are, is labor. And so managing the thousands of people who work in that environment and ensuring that we are as efficient as possible, but that we're also able to provide as much care to people in our community. We were not for profit. And so um, we're there to serve regardless of someone's ability to pay. Um, And certainly throughout my career in that kind of intense operation, I'd encountered lots of adversity and had lots of experience managing the unexpected, you know, the operational mishaps that might happen or financial hardship, you know, the very lean years, um, to external or internal disasters, uh, power outages, water outages, uh, earthquakes, um, external disasters where traumas were brought to us, um, you know, and occasional um, PR nightmares. Um, And our teams had really been very well trained uh, and seasoned in crisis management. You know, after all, trauma was a big part of our business. It just that it was almost always other people's traumas that we faced. And rarely were we in the position of responding to our own internal trauma. Uh, but that all changed on April 16th, 2009. And we had an extraordinary workplace uh, trauma that affected the organization and me personally for years to come. And it was a day that we really described as the before and the after, uh, a trauma that shook the organization to, the, to its core. Well, tell us a little bit more about how did it shape you and the organization going forward? Yeah, well, on April 16th, 2009, um, a man entered the outpatient pharmacy of the hospital and it was adjacent to the main lobby. Um, and he shot the supervisor of that outpatient pharmacy several times at point blank range. Um, he then ran a considerable distance through the hallways of the medical center and he waved the gun and yelled at people to get out of the way because he didn't you know, he didn't want to hurt them. Um, he exited the building near the emergency department, and he in, then encountered the executive director of the outpatient pharmacy services. And he proceeded to shoot him several times at point blank range before he ended up turning turning the gun on himself. Uh, the two victims and the shooter 
uh, died on site. And obviously, this event was terrifying for those who witnessed the shootings and responded to the scenes. And as the CEO, I was in the vicinity of the first shooting and ended up responding to all three scenes. Um, I'd known uh, both victims, and one in particular was a very good friend. Uh, but regardless of any one person's proximity or involvement, it was traumatic for everyone in the organization because the shooter was an employee. Uh, he was not only a member of the pharmacy staff, he was beloved by many throughout the hospital. And he'd even been recently honored as the employee of the month. Quite traumatic. And I can't even imagine what that would have uh, done to you personally or the effect on the organization. Uh, the fear that uh, must have pervaded the organization after something like that happens. Uh, maybe you can describe that for us. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, as an acute care hospital, we couldn't close after the shooting or stop to regroup. Uh, we still had more than 600 patients that were in-house who needed our care. Uh, so we had to go on. And so I often thought of it as the, like the off-sided business idiom of continuing to fly the plane uh, and repairing it at the same time. Um, we made a lot of mistakes in our response, but we did an extraordinary job. Um, what I found in responding to trauma that happens internally like that, the level of camaraderie, um, connectedness, it really revealed this extraordinary esprit de corps. Um, it, in survival mode, there were many, many positives, um, driven, I think, primarily around our human tendency at least initially, to come together in a crisis. And I've seen this pattern, certainly, as I work with other individuals and organizations that have been traumatized. Um, but even as the immediate danger passed and the event was deemed over, um, the full extent of its impact didn't really end on the day of the shooting. Um, many individuals, myself included, and the organization itself had been severely traumatized and as I'd said, shaken to the core. And I think often when I hear of other shootings or other traumas um, that are so shattering, uh, particularly around safety and security, um, I, often, I often think about the people who, we all think the event is over, and I think it's just beginning for all the survivors, for the families, for the people involved. It's just beginning, and the ripple effect of what trauma does, both and certainly for individuals, but also for the organization itself. And I learned that the organization itself can be traumatized. And I started to see the patterns uh, in other organizations that had been traumatized. Well, that's a, um, you know, incredibly powerful story and experience. And, uh, we're going to uh, ask more about that after the break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. My guest, Dr. Diana Handel, former CEO of Long Beach Memorial Hospital. And uh, we'll be back in just one minute. Welcome back to Unite and Heal America. My guest again, Dr. Diana Handel. CEO, former CEO of Long Beach, Long Beach Memorial Hospital. Uh, you're listening to KBC 790. And I wanted to talk to you, uh, Diana, about how um, 
this affected you personally after the shooting and uh what was what was your response in uh going forward what was an interesting um kind of two-pronged um as the incident commander as the senior most person i was leading our response and because we all had been so well trained and really seasoned we hadn't experienced something as tragic as this we could go into auto mode. Uh, we had a really well-designed structure for responding to, to disasters, and we had practiced it and used it many times. But having that structure really served us well. It helped to uh, steady our emotions. It helped to keep us really focused. Um, so on the one hand, I could move just readily into professional mode. But on the other hand, this was my home department. These were people I knew well. and. I'd been witness to the scenes. And so for me on an individual basis, um, I was severely traumatized. And I don't know that until months and months later uh, and thinking about thinking back on it, that I realized that I'd really been in shock for a number of months. Um, I threw myself into hyperdrive. Um, I found that I coped in what I thought were really socially acceptable and very positive ways. I um, just threw myself into work. Um, and in some ways later, realizing that um, that overwork, there was some relationship to atonement. I had been the leader responsible and the responsible leader for an event that had affected our organization. And the motive surrounding the event was very complicated. And because it was an insider uh, created a tremendous amount of complication for us as an organization. For me personally, one of the motives that emerged instantaneously was the shooter had been angry about an upcoming layoff. And I had struggled with that particular layoff and the decision around it. And so it just was like an arrow to the heart, a, a dagger that years later now, of course, I can see that, of course, I didn't cause the shooter to do what he had done. But in the throes of trauma and as an individual, what was deep-seated for me was a belief that I had been responsible, that I had somehow been a factor. And while I could talk, try to talk myself out of that um, and think about being irrational, that really only the shooter was responsible, um, what I noticed that when traumas like this happen, once we know the what, and the who, once the details, and once we're stable, if you will, that the event is over, um, our natural question as a society, as, as groups, as individuals, is to ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Well, that question inadvertently can cast a wide net of secondary blame and self-blame. And so I think there were lots of us that evaluated our relationship with the shooter and had created narratives around whether somehow we played a part. And we see this a lot in people who've been traumatized. It's not uncommon for soldiers or commanders to feel responsible uh, for death or um, injury to their troops. And so very much as the commander in chief, if you will, uh, I felt that. Um, now I got help and we secured psychological counseling for our teams in addition to to all the other logistical kind of help that we needed. Um, 
But remaining in the same environment year after year, seeing the same scenes, um, I couldn't completely recover and heal. And so I found after six years uh, in the organization that we had rebounded. The organization in some ways had gotten stronger than ever. In some ways, I had gotten stronger than ever. Um, But I found that I did need to accept the fact that I did have PTSD, that I needed to step aside. um, And, you know, the organization deserved a completely healthy CEO. And I deserved to completely recover and heal. And so I stayed for six years and enjoyed every minute of it, but also was privately tortured by it. Um, Many people have asked, why didn't I leave sooner if I had been so traumatized? Um, Or why I wasn't able able to recover in the same location? And I think back on it and I think that uh, I didn't stay one day too long and I didn't leave one day too soon. Um, We had healed in the best way we could. And I personally had had healed as much as I could. And so then it was time to step aside. And that's what I did. And so that's how it affected me as an individual. Well, it's certainly very admirable of you to, to see that you had reached a point where it was valuable to you and to the organization to move on. Because I think that there's probably a lot of leaders out there that uh, would grip on to the bitter, bitter end and not give the organization a chance to kind of reach to the next level. And it might not even be in that traumatic of a situation, but they, they have a hard time relinquishing the grip on, on the organization. So kudos to you for doing that. And I guess I would ask, just kind of segueing that experience to how that um, informed the writing of the books that uh, you've written, Why Cope When You Can Heal, which you wrote with Dr. Uh, Mark Goulston and you uh, co-authored. Tell us a little bit about that and and how your experiences at the hospital informed uh, that book. Well, it did take me about a year to completely recover and heal. Um, It was a loss of identity. It was a nearly 30-year career, um, I had started our conversation with talking about um, that sense of commitment and mission. And I, I started that way on purpose because um, it was a large part of my life and it was a large part of my reason for being. It was my calling um, to serve at the hospital and ultimately as the CEO. So uh, departing was another trauma in some ways, um, and having to navigate and reemerge as an individual and as a leader and as a professional. Um, But I knew in my heart the day that I did depart um, that it was the right thing to do. I never doubted that whatsoever. Um, I knew it was absolutely necessary to pass the baton to an extraordinarily strong team that had been developed and an organization that, as I mentioned, had been Uh, That was a legacy. It had been in um, serving that community for more than 100 years. So it was um, I had done my part and it was time to pass the baton. Um, But what motivated uh, or what brought me to Dr. Mark Golston was actually that I had written a memoir uh, called Responsible. And it was a memoir of my experience of leading um, through that shooting and the effect uh, on me as an individual, but also on the culture of the organization. 
it served as a tribute to my fallen colleagues um, and also as a tribute to the co-workers uh, who had survived and who I had worked alongside for the next six years. Uh, but I also wrote it because I wanted to, in essence, come out as a leader who had PTSD. Um, I experienced a tremendous amount of stigma, and much of that stigma was my own, um, coming to grips with the fact that I had a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, you know, we, we toss that word around pretty casually, but when someone really has it, you really have the, the feeling of the stigma. And as I said, it was a lot, many of my own beliefs um, tangled in the idea that PTSD was somehow a personal weakness, uh, that I hadn't been able to rise above it. And it wasn't until going through the full recovery to understand the injury um, and understand that actually um, I had become even stronger in the result, as a result of the trauma. Um, so weakness was not the factor. Uh, it was an injury that I had to recover from. Um, so that memoir was really important to me. And it's what drew me to Dr. Mark Golston. Um, he and I then collaborated uh, this past summer on a book specifically for healthcare workers. And you, you said the title, Why Cope When You Can Heal. And it was specifically to both um, record the history of the COVID pandemic and the impact on healthcare workers, um, validate uh, the traumatic stress that they're experiencing, and hopefully augment the services and programs that many hospitals have put in place to ensure uh, optimal well-being. Because we know that healthcare workers are at risk for, for burnout, they're at risk for traumatic stress now, and potentially at risk for PTSD. And so we wanted to uh, be of service to, to help others um, on the healthcare front lines um, as they navigate what now is well over a year of uh, pretty stressful uh, conditions within healthcare organizations. Well, I think uh, one of the things I, I just wanted to clarify, when you're talking about PTSD, we're talking about post-traumatic syndrome, uh, stress disorder, uh, mm -hmm. and post-traumatic stress disorder a lot of times uh, is associated with combat and troops and the military, and uh, a lot of our troops have suffered from that, and uh, certainly the type of trauma that you had been through is is similar to the types of trauma that somebody would see on a, on a battlefield shooting. Uh, but uh, sometimes it doesn't have to be quite as dramatic as trauma of a shooting to to uh, register at that level. And maybe you can describe you described it a bit in your book. But I think it'd be helpful to the listeners to to hear a, a little bit more about that. When I think of the trauma definition as something that, in essence, is an existential crisis, something that threatens our existence, um, our lives, or our livelihoods, um, something that involves death or threat of death, um, or such major disruption or destruction where people describe a sense of groundlessness, um, that what they thought they could count on they no longer can, and something that really supersedes adversity or routine business stress. Um, and without a doubt, healthcare workers, uh, let's be really clear, they're amongst the most resilient, 
the strongest, the most emotionally tough people uh, in our society. We'll continue this after the break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Batter, my guest, Dr. Diana Handel. And uh, we'll come back in a minute talking about uh, our heroic healthcare workers. So stay tuned. You're listening to KABC 790, Unite and Heal America with uh, Matt Mattern. Our guest today is Dr. Diana Handel, and we're just talking about PTSD as it relates to healthcare workers during the pandemic and uh, your book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, uh, which you co-authored with uh, Dr. Mark Wilson. Tell us a little bit more about what organizations have what healthcare organizations and healthcare workers have had to go through that uh, would have caused a fair amount of PTSD in uh, those facilities. Yeah, as I mentioned, healthcare workers are extraordinarily resilient and they are accustomed to handling death. It's not uncommon, uh, but nothing on the scale and scope and the duration Um, of the COVID pandemic. And so initially when there wasn't much information known about the virus, um, there was a lot of risk for healthcare workers themselves. And so it was very similar in some ways to the insider um, that many times people are brought to hospitals for care, but people being brought to the hospitals for care also posed a risk to the healthcare workers themselves. But the other part of the traumatic stress that healthcare workers have experienced is that Certainly in the initial days and and even throughout the entire pandemic, most patients, well, no patient was was able to be in the company of their own family members. And so witnessing, bearing witness to patients passing away by connection to iPad with their family members um, is extraordinarily stressful. And again, while a healthcare worker might be accustomed to a death On occasion, nothing to the scale that we saw um, with the pandemic. The other part that created a tremendous amount of traumatic stress is that many healthcare workers were separated from their families. They themselves didn't want to infect their family members. And so many were working long hours um, and separated from their family members. So those elements of, of trauma, if you will, because they do involve death, because they do involve so much groundlessness and uncertainty, um, we have seen a rise in traumatic stress. Now, whether we'll see it actually become PTSD um, remains to be seen. And it was one of the reasons that Dr. Mark Golston and I wrote Why Cope When You Can Heal, because we wanted to be able to be, again, in service to intervene and help organizations intervene sooner so that we called attention to it being traumatic stress and didn't just label it every day or routine stress so that uh, measures could be taken to ensure that people got the help they need. And healthcare is one of those environments that you know we characterize as a stiff upper lip, um, that just get over it kind of culture. Um, as I said, healthcare uh, people are really tough. And you, so- I just yeah. sorry to interrupt you for a second. I just wanted to underline what the difference is between stress and trauma. Kind of make that sure. Well, trauma always involves death and destruction, so or the threat of, and stress um, is 
subacute is less than that. Um, we think of setbacks or adversity, um, disappointments, um, that those are stressful and they can create a tremendous amount of stress for us in society. But traumatic stresses where it involves the threat or the actual death or uh, threat of death um, to individuals who are, are involved. And so um, the pandemic has been extraordinarily stressful for people in healthcare. And I think many of us outside the hospital are not as aware of how um, stressful it has been within. Now, the organizations, many have done a tremendous job in ensuring that there are assistance programs, lots of psychological support or chaplains or others who can be, uh, or peer support groups um, be in support. And so the hospitals have really stepped up to call it traumatic stress so that um, it doesn't just, we don't just close the door on that chapter and not, not process the feelings and the emotions um, that healthcare workers have experienced over now this, well, more than a year now. So how do you see um, what can be done by healthcare uh, professionals and leaders in healthcare of healthcare organizations to address this um, trauma and stress that have um, deeply affected healthcare workers? What I'm seeing many organizations do, certainly in the early phases, they established employee assistance programs. So they had an array of services available, but also people were extraordinarily uh, busy. And so it made it hard to access those services. I'm seeing most organizations um, be very forthcoming about naming the stress, if you will, that their workers have been under. Um, honoring them, if you will, in that, that ha this has been an extraordinary year and not just pushing on and not just um, moving forward without also processing what they've been going through. Um, what a lot of the work that we do and others do and, and um, healthcare professionals in the hospitals have been doing is helping um, healthcare workers uh, take care of themselves, focus on, in essence, putting their own oxygen mask on first and making sure that uh, they have habits for self-care or access um, to additional care for themselves. So that's first and foremost. We're also working with organizations on helping individual workers identify um, moments that need processing, moments that were perhaps triggering for them, um, perhaps a week or a particular um, set of days where there was inordinate amount of death um, that they had to just keep going forward and now do need to process through. Um, so that's been a lot of the focus, certainly of hospitals um, and a lot of the work that we do in helping to support that. I would imagine that there's going to be some moment when, as this pandemic hopefully begins to wind down, that uh, the healthcare workers kind of collapse kind of and feel like uh, now I've I've gone through this incredibly stressful time and the defenses kind of finally come down a bit. Uh, yet, given the 24-7 demands of our healthcare system, will they ever get that kind of break in order to have have that moment? You know, it's such a good question. And the observation that 
by nature, these organizations or these hospitals, they just keep moving forward. They are 24 seven. Um, and so will there be those moments? And there is fear that um, large segments of the workforce will um, burn out or suffer from uh, traumatic stress or, you know, potentially PTSD. Um, and so organizations are talking readily about that. How can they redesign their processes and their structures? How can they um, evolve their workforce so that uh, workers can have more time off, um, who can also access uh, more self-care? And so it's a large part of the conversation that this, in a way, has has um, kind of popped that bubble of um in essence, the, the extreme limits of resiliency. This isn't about healthcare workers becoming stronger or tougher. Um, it is also about them being able to process um, and about the workplace structures changing uh, to continue to support them. Right. And this, uh, the question I have is in terms of the number of people that experience the trauma, both in the healthcare and outside of the healthcare field, uh, you had said in your book, approximately 70% of the general population experiences some kind, tra some kind of traumatic event during their life. So what percentage of that group uh, will go on to experience uh, post-traumatic stress disorder? You know, it's interesting that the um, research is still evolving. And at, currently, most of the research has been done in uh, military settings, and it ranges the, the prevalence of PTSD in soldiers who have been traumatized or experienced trauma. Um, the prevalence really ranges uh, from, gosh, 3% to 20% in some studies. Um, but much more needs to be done because we often think about the factors that lead to someone um, officially having a diagnosis of PTSD. And we often think about the individual um, elements, um, their past histories, um, their past traumas, perhaps. Um, but a lot of, of it has to do with the specifics of the trauma. And even though two people may experience a trauma, they very likely don't experience it in the same way. Um, their proximity to it, the relationship or history with the people involved, their role in, um, let's say, in leadership or commanding, if it's a military setting, um, the nature of the trauma, the severity of it, um, the shocking or surprise nature, um, if the perpetrator or um, uh, the person who has caused the trauma is known, um, if it's random um, act of violence versus uh, an internal uh, violence. So all those factors come into play. And so there's not enough, enough yet known about uh, our ability to predict who might um, have PTSD. But it's why it's so important for destigmatization of PTSD so that we can be um, right from the outset casting a wider net so that people who might develop PTSD do get the care they need. Well, uh I want to ask you a question about uh, how the frequency of somebody experiencing trauma, say, whether it's a healthcare worker or a military veteran, and, and whether that uh, also plays into it. 
And uh, we'll get back. We'll have you answer that question after the break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter. My guest, again, Diana Handel, former CEO of Long Beach Memorial Hospital and author of a number of books. Uh, You'll come back in one minute. You're back uh, listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. Our guest again, Diana Handel. Please, uh, if you would, doctor, talk to us about whether the frequency of traumatic events affects um, whether or not somebody's more likely to get PTSD. And then also like to just kind of segue into your second book with uh, Dr. Mark Wilson uh, that you wrote, Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. Yeah, so I'll start first with um, people who've experienced repeated traumas. Um, Most of the research does suggest that they're more likely to develop PTSD. That doesn't mean they will develop PTSD. Again, lots of factors involved. Um, And I think that while the study of who who develops PTSD following a traumatic uh, event is really important, I think um, where the research has continued to go is looking at the factors um, such as repeated traumas, um, the types of trauma, the proximity to it, the relationship to uh, the perpetrators or to the victims. Um, so those lot, there are many, many factors that contribute, but none of them suggest that someone will or um, absolutely will develop PTSD. Um, patients who where there's intervention and full processing can occur, um, often don't develop PTSD or may have short-term acute stress injury, uh, but don't develop full-blown PTSD. It really varies. I think much more of the research has also, besides the processing piece, has really moved into where does trauma in essence reside in our bodies? You know, so much of our response to a traumatic event is in that biological automatic response of fight, flight, or freeze. And so there's a lot of study about how uh, many times we're able to, once we've been shocked and we you know, might flee or we may fight or we may freeze in order to survive, um, once the event is over, many times we can shake it off in essence. Um, and I'm using that term shake it off loosely, but we can reset and we can reset to baseline. But again, depending upon the trauma um, and depending upon um, how, how uh, thoroughly it's processed, um, that, that trauma can, in essence, reside in our bodies. Um, there's been lots of research done about where traumatic stress resides in our bodies. And so many patients, besides emotionally processing an event or a series of events, will also really do a lot of body work on how to release that tension, release that uh, traumatic stress from their bodies. Well, that's fascinating. It's, uh, it's amazing that uh, I think post-traumatic stress disorder has been around or that diagnosis has been around for probably going on 50 years or more. And yet we're still just kind of in the infancy as to uh, discovering its uh, origins and how it how it operates within our system. It's fascinating. And uh, just uh, turning to your to your second book, uh, the roadmap, the trauma to triumph. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and and uh, what brought you to to writing that book. 
Yeah, it's another collaboration with Dr. Mark Golston. And this book, uh, different from The Why Cope When You Can Heal, that was uh, focused on healthcare workers and individuals uh, dealing with traumatic stress, uh, this one is uh, at the organizational level. So when I shared my story about the trauma that happened at the hospital and shared the impact on me as an individual, um, there also are signs and symptoms, if you will, of trauma that shows up in an organization that's been traumatized. And many times, um, well, we don't always recognize them uh, at the time. Uh, They're much more recognizable in retrospect. Um, And at the time that our organization was traumatized, of course, we did get lots of help for individuals, um, but there weren't experts in the world for how trauma affects the organization or the culture of the organization. In fact, to date, there are very few books that are published that talk about it at an organizational level. And so the work that I've done over the last 12 years and in working with clients and my own study is that there are these signs and symptoms that most organizations display uh, when they've been traumatized. And we, we think of trauma as these single events, like a shooting um, or a natural disaster or you know, death of um, a coworker or something that um, in an instant shakes the organization to the core. Um, but we've also discovered that there are um, more chronic traumas that can occur. I mean, certainly our, our country is dealing with systemic racism and has been for hundreds of years, but we're now much more openly talking about that. Um, sexual harassment, um, a layoff or the ongoing threat of layoffs can be very traumatic for an organization. And so in working with organizations that have been traumatized, we see these patterns and um, these signs and symptoms. And so we wrote the book, one, to provide these observations. um, And many organizations that have been traumatized um, see themselves in the mirror and say, aha, um, we we did discover that. We did see those patterns. But then the rest of the book is very tactical um, very actionable. Um, we didn't want to just describe a problem. We wanted to have actionable uh, tactics for how organizations and their leaders could address uh, trauma so that they didn't just position themselves to survive um, through an existing trauma or uh, prepare themselves to survive the next trauma, because it's not really a matter of if, it's really a matter of when. But also what we learned in my own organization is how we rebounded our focus on team building, our focus on decision making, our focus on our communication practices. They actually made us stronger for everyday circumstances. So we became a better organization uh, in the aftermath because of how the trauma had affected us. Well, tell us about the signs and symptoms of a traumatized organization as opposed to a traumatized individual. Even though we all experienced the same trauma in our example, the shooting, or in the COVID example, we're we're all experiencing the same pandemic trauma, but we're not all experiencing the same way. Um, The proximity, the relationships, as I've mentioned, all those were factors in um, how it affected the individuals. So at the organizational level, then, Because there are these wide points of view, because very few people have access to all the information, um, there are all these narratives that emerge. And so with that and that question of why, 
what very often happens after that initial coming together and camaraderie and esprit de corps and connectedness and that feeling like we can get through this, what happens when the question of why, um, then the blame happens, uh, finger pointing happens. And sometimes it's really outright and sometimes it's more insidious and under the radar. Uh, but that's a characteristic of most organizations and the impact on their culture, that there's an underlying blame or uh, finger pointing about the cause. Um, questions like, why didn't the organization prevent it? Um, why didn't why did leadership do the layoff in, in this case um, that caused it? I mean, that, that belief. Were there signs and symptoms that were missed? Um, why didn't we have bulletproof glass? Why weren't our security um, guards armed? Um, questions like that. And in any kind of trauma, there's a series of blame-oriented questions that emerge. But the second is that there's a wide um, range of guilt and at the individual level and at the organizational level. And then ultimately, a fair amount of shame. Um, sometimes the organization is ashamed of what has happened. And can their customers, can their patients, in our case, um, can their communities trust them? Um, how, how they navigated or how uh, they conducted themselves, did their culture cause that trauma to occur? So that um, kind of trifecta of blame and guilt and shame is really quite common in organizations. And that last one, the shame, often makes the conversation pretty taboo um, because there's a wide range of points of view. It makes it really difficult to process what's happened as an organization. And so it becomes taboo and often very unspeakable. And even though the event or the circumstances aren't talked about, they remain underground. And that causes a lot of uh, cultural harm in the organization. Let me ask you, in terms of uh, just kind of wrapping this part of it up, we, uh, we've got about a minute to go. How would you um, counsel organizations to, to move forward to get to the triumph that you talk about in your book? Yeah, well, quickly in a nutshell, and again, we really elaborated in our, our uh, roadmap book. Um, we talk about being prepared and having a rapid response team, having an organization that is able to assemble its members really quickly um, and not haphazardly. Uh, we talk about the ability to, once a bit of the dust has settled, to be able to look back and do a really honest assessment of what's gone well and what hasn't. Um, we talk about communication being absolutely important, uh, critically important, and that it's named as trauma. Um, that the event is not just brushed aside or brushed under the rug, that uh, a lot of effort to describe how it can affect an organization, to normalize it in a way that we could expect blame to occur. We could expect guilt and shame to occur. And talking about that versus having it go under the rug um, is really important. We talk about team building and the importance of uh, a recommitment to that team building, decision making is a large part. Um, certainly organizations need to be able to respond quickly, but also ensure that they have gotten a lot of involvement uh, from people in the organization. Um, so that's one example of the importance of decision-making and an element of it. Um, and again, I mentioned communication being um, a cornerstone and very clear about how the organization communicates about what has happened. 
Well, it's a fascinating conversation and uh, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern and my guest today, Dr. Diana Handel, author of a couple of uh, very interesting books, Why Cope When You Can Heal and Trauma to Triumph. <laughs>